Well, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Welcome to our Saturday morning Shabbat service as we're studying this morning the book of Deuteronomy. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 32, continuing in our study of verse 18 that we started last week and just ran out of time before we could finish it. So if you would join me in Deuteronomy 32, 18, it says, Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful. And have forgotten the God who fathered you. So in that verse, we learn so very much. We know from the New Testament, who is the rock? The rock's our Messiah, Yeshua. But here it says the rock is God. Is this telling us in the Old Testament that Yeshua is God? When did he become God? He always has been. John 1 1, the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's always been God. But of the rock who begot you, that is, He is the Creator. He's the Creator? What's that? Colossians Colossians chapter 1. So the New Testament and the Old Testament, again, they agree. And you've forgotten the God who fathered you. So the scripture is telling us in no uncertain terms that Messiah has been from the beginning. He is God because he always was God. Let us continue with 1 Samuel, which is what we said at the end of service last week we'd start with today, is the 1 Samuel cross-reference to help us understand what this all means. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 12. And for those of you who are new, let me just let you know, you can ask questions. I ask questions of you, so it's only fair that you get to ask questions too. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. And when they forgot the Lord their God, see the way the Lord is spelled with the capital letters, that's how you know the underlying Hebrew is the four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav the Tetragrammaton, the name of the Lord. Sometimes we say Adonai, sometimes we say Hashem. Here they translate it as the Lord. The Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hatzor, into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. You might say, what is the significance of this verse? Who is their God? The Lord. What's Messiah called all throughout the New Testament? The Lord. So it's just another step in putting the puzzle pieces together. Go to Job chapter 8. Job chapter 8. Job chapter 8, starting in verse 8. Helping us to understand who the rock is. Job chapter 8, starting in verse 8. It says, For inquire, please, of the former age, and consider the things discovered by their fathers. Meaning what? Were we supposed to learn something from the lessons of old? Yes, we were. Does it tell us that in the New Testament? Yes, it does. For we were born yesterday and know nothing. Because our days on earth are a shadow, meaning we're here for such a short time. 
We weren't there when God spoke from Mount Sinai. When the mountain shook. When the mountain was on fire. When the people were terrified. So how do we learn about it? We read about it. And we don't do what they did, yeah. Will they not teach you and tell you in other words from their hearts? That is, if you study the lessons of old. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? What's the answer to that? Who knows? We don't grow papyrus. No, the answer is no, it doesn't. Can the reeds flourish without water? No. While it is yet green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God. Is forgetting God a good thing? No, it is not. And the hope of the hypocrite shall perish. Wait a minute. Does Messiah talk about the hypocrites in Matthew 15, Mark chapter 7, and all over the rest of the New Testament? What's a hypocrite? An actor. An actor. One who pretends to be something they're not. Particularly one who claims to be a child of God when really they're not. Okay, so yours just translates it differently. But what is a hypocrite, a one who is defiled, who thinks they're pure and they're not? Whose confidence shall be cut off and whose trust is a spider's web? He leans on his house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. Does that make you think of Matthew chapter 7 about the man who built the house on the rock versus the one who built it on the sand? Yeah. He grows green in the sun and his branches spread out in his garden. He, his roots wrap around the rock heap and look for a place in the stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him saying, I have not seen you. His roots wrap around the rock heap. If our roots are wrapped around Messiah, our rock, can we be moved? We cannot. Who told us that? Messiah himself did. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. We're up to verse 19. We're in the song of Moses that according to Deuteronomy will be sung forever. And in Revelation chapter 15 we find that the believers in the tribulation period are still singing this song. It has so much to teach us. And what happened when the rapture came? All the true believers were caught up to heaven. So who's left on earth then? Almost everybody. <laughs> Those that were not believers, right? Were they all Bible scholars? They know the Bible in and out. They know every doctor. The answer is no. How are they going to learn? They're going to have to study. The 144,000 is going to lead them, but they're going to have to study. And one thing they're going to do is learn to sing the song of Moses. Verse 19, And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them. What does it mean to spurn? To treat with contempt, to reject, to turn away, to push away. Why? Because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. Idolatry is an abomination unto the Lord our God. We all know that, don't we? Yeah, what did the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai do? 
They have seen the mountain on fire. They have heard the quaking. They felt the quaking. They heard the voice of God with their own ears. They were terrified. And then immediately they did what? Go to Exodus 32. They build a golden calf. Yeah. In God's very presence, they built a golden calf. <clears throat> Exodus 32, starting in verse 19. So if we're supposed to learn lessons from of old, do we learn a lesson we should go build a golden calf whenever we're afraid? No, that's not it at all. Start in verse 19. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. What was on those tablets? The Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, the commandments of God that the people heard with their own ears. Why would Moses break them? It was symbolic of what? What did the people just do? They broke the covenant. They made with God before he came down to Mount Sinai. He said, all that the Lord says we shall do. They entered into a covenant with God, mutual promises. God promised to set them high above all nations. They promised to be obedient to every word he said, and they're building a golden calf. Once that covenant was broken, why would it persist further on? It looks like it was broken, therefore the deal's off. Because it's not, it's not unilateral. God still has his part and will never break his part, despite the sinfulness of the so people. So it really wasn't a bilateral covenant, it was really a unilateral co covenant? I, if you want to put it that way, yes. It's like if I covenant with you to sell you my car and you break your end of the deal but you still get my car, it just doesn't seem right. It may not seem right, but does God ever break his side of a covenant? He never does. So what's he going to do? He He's going to renew the covenant. If, yeah, if he puts an if in it, though, that... Yeah. But there is an if. But the if is the punishment and, yeah. and the curses and all that. Yeah. Isn't that sort of an if as far as... I mean, it's not that he would break his covenant, but there's consequences. Of there's consequences of Israel breaking its part. Yeah. But let's go back to Exodus 19 for a moment. And we're going to see this covenant does not have an if in it. Exodus 19. Yes. So, I mean, they couldn't enter back into covenant because they died. He doesn't always, you know, act that way. What are y'all saying? I can't hear you. So, let's get back to the scripture and I will fill you in as we go along. The question is, when the children of Israel broke their side of the covenant, does God just do away with them? Does he turn away? Is he released from the covenant? Does he just walk away? And the answer is no. We're going to see why. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Let me have a chance to get there. I don't want to get ahead of you. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you. What's that word? For, does that mean for a little while? No, forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So if the people will not keep their side, are they going to receive the blessings they would have received? The answer is no. Did they break their side? Yes. So that's what's, go back to Exodus 32, that's the significance of the breaking of the tablets. They have broken the covenant. But does God ever break his side? That's Psalm 89, verse 34. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Those that broke the covenant, as Daniel said, they die right there at Mount Sinai. So let's read it. That's why we're in Exodus 32, by the way, and why we didn't start at verse 1. We want to look at the consequences of breaking the covenants you have with Almighty God. Verse 20, then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. This is a picture of the sotah. Are you familiar with the sotah, S-O-T-A-H? If a man in, in the scripture suspects his wife is unfaithful but has no proof, then there's a ceremony called the sota where she drinks this liquid and it will demonstrate whether or not she is faithful or whether she's unfaithful. When the children of Israel drink it, it's going to show who amongst the children of Israel turned away from God, broke the covenant, and engaged in this idolatry. Is it everybody? No. But those who did... So let's see, verse 21, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. I bet even the children in the back don't believe that story, right? It just jumped out of the fire. What could I do? Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp. Let every man kill his brother and every man his companion, every man his neighbor. So why aren't they all dead? Is kill those who participated in the idolatry. How can we tell who did and who didn't? There's going to be a reaction from drinking the liquid from the golden calf burning. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. 
In Acts chapter 2, how many get saved? About 3,000. What do you know? It's the exact same words. 3,000 were lost here. 3,000 were gained in Acts chapter 2. Do you think it literally means just the men? Or, I mean, nope. In biblical Hebrew, if you've got a mixed gender group, use masculine nouns. So this would be a mix. This would be a mixture. Yeah. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man is opposed to his son and his brother. So it's not all Israel that broke the covenant. Does God hold everybody responsible because some broke it? The answer is no. This is why God's covenant continues. Because not everybody participated in the idolatry. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You've committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. What does atonement mean? A covering over. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. What is that book? Book of life. What does it mean to blot him out? It would mean he's not coming into the kingdom. He'd be cast in a lake of fire. But what does God say? And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. I bet Moses went. Yeah, I bet Moses went. But notice, who gets held responsible for the sin? Those who committed the sin. God does not punish the whole because of the actions of the sum. Not directly, but people may suffer the consequences of like the fallout. There may be fallout, there may be consequences, but that's different from being blotted out of the book of life. Sure. Yeah. Now therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. If they didn't participate in the idolatry, what was their sin? They let it happen. They did nothing to try and stop it. Goes right along with Romans chapter 1. Is it okay to tolerate sin and encourage it? Complacency makes you guilty too. Yeah. Verse 35. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. So idolatry is an abomination unto God. It always was, it always is. But now if we go back to Exodus. In chapter 34, which is just a chapter after the golden calf incident, right? Exodus 34, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Who cut out the first set of tablets? God did. Up at the top of the mountain, and Moses had to just carry them down. Now Moses has to cut out the tablets and carry them up. Would you rather carry a heavy stone load down a mountain yes. or up the mountain? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on them new commandments, right? Mm-hmm. No, the words that were on the first tablet which you broke, the very same words. Has God's covenant changed? 
The answer is no. Has God's commandments changed? No. So the covenant gets renewed. Does it get renewed differently? No. The commandments remain the same. Verse 4, so he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning, went up Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. So God will forgive us if we confess our sins. Is that true in the New Testament too? Does it say that in the book of 1 John? It most certainly does. What about those who don't want to repent? Those who enjoy the sin? Those who want to continue living in the sin? They're going to be blotted out, aren't they? Ooh, oh, wow. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. Verse 20. So that explains what we mean in verse 19 about the provocation of his sons and daughters. Was that their only provocation? Was that the only time they sinned before God? No. Yeah, there's four more books of provocation. How many times have I said Israel is the only nation fortunate enough to have all their sins written in a book for everybody to read? Aren't you glad we're not reading the book of your sins? Yeah, yeah, me too. Okay. What else did they do in the wilderness? They complain about what? Everything. Water, food. God gave them manna from heaven every morning except Shabbat. And the day before Shabbat, he gave them a double portion. So what did they whine about? We don't have any meat. We just have this yucky bread. So he gave them quail until they didn't want quail anymore. They complained we don't have any water, so he brought water out of the rock. Their clothes still fit and weren't worn out after 40 years, even their shoes. And yet when God told them to go into the land of Israel and take it, they said, what? Oh, there's giants in the land. We can't go in there. So they wandered for 38 more years. And watch God defeat Sihon and Og, the two giants on the east side of the Jordan River. Verse 20. And he said, I will hide my face from them. What does that mean? Yep, cut off their blessings. Will he hear their prayers so long as they refuse to hear his commandments? No. Boy, that sounds like Proverbs 28, 9, doesn't it? Let's turn to Proverbs 28.9. Proverbs 28.9. One who turns away his ear from hearing the Torah, the law of God, even his prayer is an abomination. Boy, I'm glad that's not true in the New Testament era. <laughs> Yeah, go to John 9, verse 31. God does not change. John chapter 9, verse 31. 
Now we know that God does not hear sinners. What's sin? 1 John 3, 4, lawlessness. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. So what we see in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, that they're still singing in the day of the Lord, is still true. It's true today. It'll be true tomorrow. There is not an or, it's an and. So it's not enough just to worship, you have to, you have to do. It's not enough to worship God or claim to worship God. To worship God, you must actually obey God. You must fulfill. That sounds like Hebrews chapter 3. But instead of going there at the moment, let's go to Deuteronomy 31. But Wayne, we studied that a week or two ago. Yeah, but I forgot it already. Scripture says talk about it every day. When you get up, when you lay down, when you sit down to eat, when you go out to work. Deuteronomy 31 verses 17 and 18. In verse 16, the Lord tells Moses they're going to sin. They're going to break my word. They're not going to follow me. But verse 17 and 18 give the consequences. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day. Uh-oh. What do you know when you see the phrase, Bayom Hahu, in that day? It's going to be true in the day of the Lord. This is about the tribulation period as much as it is about ancient Israel. It's an end times prophecy. And I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. What did we learn in the scriptures last night from, from Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 and all those other scriptures? That the false Messiah is going to overcome the saints. Why? Because of this prophecy. And many evils and troubles shall befall them so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not amongst us? This is when the eyes begin to open. They're hearing the preaching of the 144,000, of the two witnesses at the temple, of the angel who's circling the globe preaching the gospel. They're beginning to say, wait a minute. We sinned. And because we sinned, this judgment has come upon us. We need to what? Repent. And that's Hosea chapters 5 and 6. Verse 18, I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they've done and that they have turned to other gods. If God has turned his face away from us, what causes him to turn back to us? Repentance. Is repentance saying, gee, I guess there's a God in heaven after all? No. No. The word shuv means to turn, to turn around, to come back to God. Stop the sinning. Well, it's kind of like we turn our back on him, he turns his back on us. Right, but we turn first. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> we turn our back on him. So who do we have, who has to turn around first then? We, yeah. And we have to turn back, then he will turn back. There's a cause and effect here. Sin has consequences. Israel's big mistake is thinking that we can live in sin and have God's blessing anyway. Because we're Israel. Because we're Israel. 
Got a free pass. Doesn't work that way. Go to Ezekiel chapter 39. I think unfortunately a lot of Christians are Christians uh, feel the same way. Unfortunately, a great portion of the church teaches that as doctrine, that we can be saved and walk in sin and God just loves it. Or you have to take the, the very definition of repentance and turn it to, oh, that's a work. You have to take the very definition of repentance and see it as a work in order to preach against it. I mean, there's so many places you read that say repentance is just saying, I'm acknowledging who Jesus is. I'm right. Right. For those in the back that can't hear, a lot of theologians are preaching that if you repent, then that's trying to earn your salvation. That's not faith. In order to have faith, you have to break all of God's commandments so he can see how much faith you put in him that he will save you anyway despite your sin. Is that true biblical doctrine? The answer is no. No. So go to Ezekiel 39. Why Ezekiel? When does it take place? In the day of the Lord, in the tribulation period. What's that? Soon. Yeah, very soon. Not next week, but very soon. And what did we read in Deuteronomy? In that day. We saw it several times. In the day of the Lord. Well, here in Ezekiel 39, we're in the day of the Lord. Verse 23. Why does the battle of Gog and Magog take place? It takes place for two reasons. First, for Israel to know that God is still God. And that God is waiting for Israel to repent and then he will deliver them. But there's a second part and that is bringing knowledge to the Gentile world. Verse 23 says, The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. Because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies. And they all fell by the sword according to their uncleanness. And according to their transgressions I have dealt with them. And hidden my face from them. So the Gentiles then come to realize, wait a minute. Israel was punished by God for their lawlessness. That's what iniquity means is lawlessness. So if they have to repent, what about us? And at the end of the battle of Gog and Magog, it's not just Israel that repents and gets saved, but many of the Gentile nations do because they come to understand the principle that has been from the beginning, that if you want God's blessing and favor, you must repent and turn to him and embrace him. Look at Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 8. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment. 2,000 years is a moment, it is to the Lord. It says, but with everlasting kindness, meaning mercy which never ends, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Look at the word Lord. That's the four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav that is the tetragrammaton. That's the name of God. 
And the word redeemer is from the Hebrew goel. The redeemer here must be a near kinsman who has the ability to redeem us and the desire to. And must be our closest relative with both the desire and ability to redeem us. Is God in heaven your relative? No. God in heaven's a spirit. So God had to take on a body of flesh and blood to be our relative. And who but the Lord has the ability and the desire to redeem us? There is no one else. So this rock who is the Lord, who is our God, is our redeemer and our only redeemer. In the same chapter, chapter 54, which verse jumps off the page? How about verse 5? For your maker, we learned about the maker back in Deuteronomy 32. The maker is your husband, the bridegroom. Who is the bride? All the believers. And who is that maker? The Lord of hosts is his name. Adonai Zavaot, the Lord of hosts. Is that an end times prophecy? It is an end times prophecy. The Lord of hosts refers... Yes, go ahead. Before you leave Isaiah 54, is this... Uh, it says, for a brief moment I deserted you. Is that the same kind of word that me, when Yeshua was on the execution stake that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was that forsaken and deserted the same meaning for that time? Do you understand the question? I do understand the question. It's a very similar meaning. But remember, Messiah was not saying that God had forsaken him. He is God. God can't forsake himself. So why would he scream, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's Psalm 22, verse 1. And when a rabbi in Israel would throw out a verse, the disciples, the apostles, were required to put it in context. And that makes him go back to Psalm 22, which is a psalm of David, written a thousand years before Messiah was born. And Psalm 22 is the psalm that said Messiah would die by crucifixion. So Messiah has told him over and over, at least four times in the Gospels, that he's going to die, he's going to be buried, he's going to be resurrected, and they still don't understand, do they? They still think he's not going to die. So he, he gives them the scriptures to look back to the prophecies of old that said not only that he would die, but that he would die by crucifixion, because Psalm 22 says, they pierced my hands and my feet. And it says that they gambled for his garments, as the Roman soldiers did for the garments of Messiah. And it's got all that prophecy in it, so that the disciples would finally understand that this has to happen. Messiah must die, he must be buried, he must be raised again, because that's been the plan of God from the beginning. And this is how they finally yes, understand sir. it. This, uh, for the moment I deserted you, that had to happen also. That desertion and leave them, you know. Yeah, that desertion means God turned his back on Israel and let him be taken into captivity where they've been for almost 2,000 years. Yeah. 
Okay. All right. Thank you. Yep. So back to verse 5 of Isaiah 54. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He's called the God of the whole earth. <clears throat> The Holy One of Israel. Do I want to chase that Ibex? Not right now. Okay. Um, so let's go back to Ezekiel 39 for just a moment. Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel chapter 39. I want to add one verse at this point. It was important to wait until this point. Now that we've discussed that God turned his back on Israel because of their sin, because of their lawlessness, their unfaithfulness. Verse 29 also says, and I will not hide my face from them anymore. For I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. What does it mean to have poured out my spirit in the house of Israel? That's when all Israel gets saved. That's what Romans 11.26 is referring to when it says, And all Israel shall be saved. When does that happen? It happens in the tribulation period. And what happens when they repent and they get saved by faith? Then God will no longer hide his face. God intervenes at the battle of Gog and Magog personally and substantially. God intervenes at the battle of Armageddon and brings it to an end. Why does he do that? Because Israel has repented and turned back to God. Reminds me of Joel. Joel 2. Reminds you of Joel 2? Let's go turn to Joel 2. Joel 2 is about the tribulation period. Joel chapter 2. Let's just do a quick summary of Joel 2. Verse 1 happens at the Feast of Trumpets. The day of the Lord is at hand. Blow the trumpet in Zion. That's the trumpet called the last trump. And I, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 and following. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it's at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, of thick clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been. No, there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them. You can keep reading. It just describes the horrible nature of the tribulation period up to that point. But in verse 12, what does God bring the tribulation on the world for? To bring them to repentance. So verse 12, here is the cry for repentance. Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. What does it mean to turn to me with all your heart? It means to repent. To repent truly, honestly, deeply. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Fasting, weeping, and mourning over what? Over our sins. 
a, finally a recognition that we have been punished by God because we sinned. So rend your heart and not your garments. To rend the heart means to be circumcised of the heart. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. It says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. So to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. He relents from doing harm to whom? Those who repent to his children, to his servants. What about his enemies? Oh, they're in deep trouble, aren't they? That's Isaiah chapter 66, verse 14. And in verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion. That's a different trumpet. That's called the Shofar Haggadol, the last trumpet. Happens at the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. How do we know it says consecrate a fast? Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather children, nursing babes, let the bridegroom, that's Messiah, go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room, that's Revelation 19.11. Why does Messiah return to defend Israel? Because of verses 12 to 14. What did they do? They repented. And when they repent and turn to God, what's he faithful to do? Forgive. Absolutely right. I'm going to get preachy if I'm not careful. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. Oh. Verse 20. I can't leave it yet. Said, I'll hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children whom is what? No faith. This is something that the world needs to grasp that much of it does not yet understand. Salvation is by faith, right? We all know that. Salvation is by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. But how does God test our faith to see if it's real or not? By our actions. Do we follow God's commandments or do we walk in sin? And if you go to Hosea chapter 3. Since it keeps coming up, we just ought to go turn there and look. Right. Whenever faith is mentioned in the New Testament, they often mention Abraham as well. To go back to Genesis 15 where it says, And Abraham believed God and God account him for righteousness. That word believe, which is the basis of our faith, means that he believed God when God spoke. And he did what God spoke because he believed God said what he meant and meant what he said. In Hebrews chapter 3. No, oh, in Hebrews chapter 3. Well, you called it Hosea. Let's go to Hebrews first. I know I've mentioned Hosea how many times? It's it's like we're going to have to go there. But now we're going to go to Hebrews first, and then we'll go to Hosea. I guess that was God's subtle way of saying, "You keep mentioning it. Go look at it." Why do I want people to turn in their Bibles and read it with their own eyes? Because people tell you all kinds of things from the pulpit. 
And how do you know if they're true or not? What did the Bereans do? They took it to the scripture to see if it's true. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 17. Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Talking about the 40 years in the wilderness. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? In whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of what? Unbelief. Unbelief. They did not obey because they did not believe. Why is this in chapter 3? Because of chapter 4. Go to chapter 4 of Hebrews verse 9. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. That word rest is sabbatismas, is the Greek word. And it means only and specifically a Sabbath rest. So chapter 3 said, Israel in the wilderness did not enter into the rest of God because of their unbelief, which was manifested by their sin. But yet there remains a Sabbath rest to come for you and I to enter in. Do we enter in through unbelief and sin? No. That's what Hebrews is trying to tell us. If you truly have faith in God, then you will be obedient to what God tells us. That's Sabbatismos, spell it S-A-B-B-A-T-I-S-M-O-S. Or any other thing that makes you say sabbatismos when you look at it. <laughs> really, that's what transliteration is. Is putting in English letters what makes you say the underlying word. Sabbatismos. S-A-B-B-A-T-I-S-M-O-S. Sabbatismos. Now to Hosea, since you guys insist. And you know where it is because you had your finger there still. Hosea chapters 5 and 6 teach exactly the same principles that we were just studying in Deuteronomy. So once more, start in Hosea chapter 5 verse 14 and we will see the three captivities of Israel. Verse 14 of Hosea 5 says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. Ephraim is the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel is divided into two parts. The northern kingdom of Israel, including ten tribes. The southern kingdom of Judah, including two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. A lion doesn't just kill its prey. It does what? It tears and scatters. So that's the prophecy of the Assyrian captivity of 722 B.C. The northern kingdom of Israel was torn and scattered, and they have not been regathered yet. They were scattered so far. The northern ten tribes have lost their tribal identity. Every person sitting in here could be part of those ten northern tribes. We have no way to know. They were scattered across Europe. The second phrase says, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. That's the Babylonian captivity. Young lion came 120 years later. A young lion doesn't scatter so far. They were in the Babylonian captivity for how long? 70 years. Why 70 years? That's the number of Sabbath years they failed to keep. Does God care about the Sabbath? 
Yes, he does. The third phrase, I, even I, will tear them and go away. I'll take them away and no one shall rescue is the Roman diaspora that began in 70, common era, with the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus and Vespasian. That captivity's been what? Almost 2,000 years now. It's beginning to come to an end, but it's only in the process. The regathering of Israel as described in Isaiah 11, 11 is only completed when Messiah returns. And at that point, the northern ten tribes are brought back. And they're grafted back into the southern two tribes to become one nation with Messiah the King. But verse 15 says how long they would be in this captivity, this Roman diaspora. It says, I will return again to my place. That's Psalm 1101. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand to make your enemies your footstool. And how long will he remain there? It says, till they acknowledge their offense. What's that mean? Till they recognize we sinned. And that's what caused all this great catastrophe that has befallen our great nation. Then they will seek my face. When? In their affliction. What is that word affliction? It's the tribulation period. They will earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord. That's what we read in Joel chapter 2. Return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. That's the promise of Deuteronomy 30. That when Israel repents, God will heal the nation. When does it happen? Verse 2, after two days he'll revive us. What is the day to the Lord? Thousand. thousand years. How long has the Roman diaspora been going about? Two thousand years for about two days. After two days he'll revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. That third day is called the day of the Lord. So it's in the day of the Lord that Israel gets regathered. All the tribes back with Messiah on the throne. Verse 3 says, Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. What is that knowledge of the Lord? That's the Torah. In Hosea chapter 4, God said, My people perish for lack of knowledge. So when they read it says, Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. How do they learn the Torah in the kingdom? Psalm 2 says, in Isaiah 2 and Micah chapter 4, Messiah is going to teach Torah when he returns. If the Torah had been abolished by Messiah, he wouldn't be teaching it in the kingdom, would he? In Psalm 2, he's going to be king. In Isaiah 2, chapter 2, and in Micah chapter 4. Let's go look. Let's look first at Psalm 2. <coughs> Maybe that was her subtle way of saying, can we go look at those passages? Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? That's the battle of Armageddon. It's so vain, it won't happen. 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed is a term for Messiah. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one. And they're saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. They say, we will not let Messiah rule and reign over us. We will not accept it. Does the Lord sit in heavens afraid? Oh no, I don't know if I can take him or not. No. He who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath. What's the wrath of God? That's the tribulation period. Distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king, that's Messiah, on my holy hill of Zion. Messiah will rule and reign from the temple mount in Jerusalem. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's those who will not repent and turn. Let's go to Isaiah 2. What about those who are willing to repent and to turn to God? That's Isaiah chapter 2 verse 2. If you've never done this, you need your pencil as we read this one. Verse 2, now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Latter days is wrong. It's end of days. Acherit hayamim in Hebrew. In the Hebrew published Bible, that's capitalized. It's what you and I call the day of the Lord. Shall come to pass in the end of days that the mountain of the Lord's house, that's the messianic kingdom, shall be established on the top of the mountains. That's the large kingdoms of the world. And shall be exalted above the hills. That's the smaller kingdoms of the world. And all nations shall flow to it. How many nations? All nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. What's the house of the God of Jacob? That's the temple. He will teach us his ways. That's Messiah. He will teach us his ways. And we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah, the law, the word of God, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Who's teaching them? Yeshua is. Turn to Micah chapter 4. <coughs> Micha, who is like, short for Michael. Michael, who is like God. That's from the Song of Moses. Right? Who is like you, O Lord, amongst the gods. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the end of days, not latter days, the end of days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the Torah shall go forth. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. How do we know it's not different commandments? Maybe it's that you've got to stand on one foot six hours of the day. Let's go to Ezekiel 44. God tells us exactly that the law has not changed. 
from the beginning of time even until the end of time. Ezekiel chapter 44, Messiah is sitting on the throne. He took the throne in chapter 43. So chapter 44 is in the Messianic kingdom. Starting in verse 23. Ezekiel chapter 44, beginning in verse 23. And they shall teach my people. What does he mean by my people? Is that just some of the people? No, they're all God's people at this point. The difference between the holy and the unholy caused them to discern between the unclean and the clean. Did pigs become clean somehow? No. Have people forgotten that? Yes, but Messiah is going to remind them in the kingdom. Pigs, shrimp, lobsters, catfish, crawfish. Yep, Isaiah 66. What happens to those eating a ham sandwich when the Lord comes? They die. Is that so they can get to heaven quicker? No, no it's not. <laughs> Verse 24, in controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws, my Torah, and my statutes. That's the chukot. Those are the commandments that we don't know why God wants us to do them. In all my appointed meetings, that's Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, feast of weeks, feast of trumpets, day of atonement, feast of tabernacles, those same appointed times of Leviticus chapter 23 that have been from the beginning. Genesis 1.14 says the sun, moon, and stars, part of their purpose is so that we know when those seven appointed times of the Lord are to take place. And they shall hallow my Sabbaths. Do you think God meant my Sundays? No, he did not. You know, I think I've gotten a little off track. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. But verse 20, I cannot stress it enough. It ends with children in whom is no faith. How does God decide whether we have faith or not? He looks at our actions. Are we obedient or aren't we? What if we claim that we know God and we walk in sin? Let's go to 1 John 2 and then we'll get on to verse 21. When Messiah is describing the Pharisees, You claim to be children of Abraham. He said, but you're not. How could he tell? If you were children of Abraham, you'd have the faith of Abraham and you would do the works of Abraham, right? Well, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, and then we'll get on to verse 21 unless, unless I go down another path. 1 John 2, starting in verse 3. In many Bibles, there's a title to this verse that's called the test of knowing him. Now by this we know that we know him. And remember John 17, verse 3 said, eternal life is that we know him. So you can say this is, how do we know whether we have eternal life or whether we don't? 
Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. What does the scripture say about all liars? They have their place in the lake of fire. This are, these are not idle words. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. It breaks my heart to say how many pastors I've heard teach these verses. And they come to these verses and they say, well, ignore these because they're wrong. The Bible made a mistake here. Because salvation is by faith and you don't need to repent. Do we set aside the word of God because a man tells us to ignore it? No. Let's go back to Deuteronomy then, chapter 32. And remember, the, the song of Moses is to be sung for how long? Forever. Forever. And in Revelation 15, they're still singing it in the day of the Lord. So verse 21. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. What, is, what does he mean? Idols. Idols aren't God? No, idols are not God. Idols are a piece of wood or a piece of metal or a piece of stone that's been fashioned into something. But it's more than that. What is behind each idol? A demon. It says, they have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. This is Hebrew parallelism. What is not God? Their foolish idols. Same thing. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I move them to anger by a foolish nation. Those last two phrases there, beginning with, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I move them to anger by a foolish nation is talking about the Gentiles that will come to saving faith in the knowledge of Messiah. That he will provoke Israel to jealousy by saying, wait a minute, they have such a nice, personal, warm relationship with God. How come I don't have that? God brought the gospel message out to the world so that we could provoke Israel to jealousy. Let's go to Romans chapter 10. Yes, ma'am. Um, the word jealousy there. The word jealousy. No, it actually means jealousy. Jealousy. You've got something I want. You've got a personal relationship with God, and I don't. How come I can't have that? What am I missing? And then you explain to them what? Ah, here's how you can have that relationship, too. Romans chapter 10. Right. Israel was supposed to provoke the nations to jealousy, that they would say, hey, Israel, you've got this nice relationship with God. We want that too. But then it's, but it's been turned around because they turned their backs on God. So God sent the gospel out in Matthew chapter 28 to the nations. And the apostles did not carry that out. They refused. 
until Acts chapter 10, when God sent the vision to Peter and said, Peter, who gets to decide what's clean and unclean? It's me. And then Peter went to the Gentiles. And then Paul was sent to the Gentiles. And did a lot of the Jewish people like it when the gospel went out to the Gentile world? No, they did not. Should they have? They should have praised God. Because finally they would be doing what they were commanded to do 2,000 years ago. Yeah. So Romans chapter 10, verse 19. Paul quotes this portion of Deuteronomy 32. He says, but I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I'll provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I'll move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. Talking about the Gentile world. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient contrary people. So Paul's saying, God says, I kept reaching out to Israel and they kept rebuffing me. So I turned to the Gentiles to find a people called out by my name. And we're talking about Isaiah chapter 65. Yeah, Messiah taught parables about those who were invited to the wedding, but they had excuses. They didn't want to come. So what did he do? He sent his servants out to the whole world to bring in everybody. Yep. The Bible's full of examples like that in parables and pictures and typology. But Isaiah 65 gets down to brass tacks. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 1. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. Talking about the Gentile world. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. That is not Israel. Notice it's written as if it already happened 2,700 years ago. In Hebrew, in Biblical Hebrew, there's only two tenses. Perfect tense, which is completed action, and imperfect, which is not yet completed. But there is something in the Biblical Hebrew called the prophetic perfect. That is prophecy that is absolutely certain to happen. So certain that God writes it as if it already had. And so that we can't sit around going, gee, I wonder if it's going to happen. God says... Think of it, it's already done, written in stone. So verse 2 says, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. That's talking about Israel. Who walk in a way that's not good, according to their own thoughts. Meaning they won't follow my commandments. They do whatever they want to do. Uh, people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. Who sacrifice in gardens. What's wrong with sacrificing in gardens? That's idolatry. Gardens in the Bible doesn't refer to fruits and vegetables. It refers to trees. Like they would cut down an evergreen tree and bring it in the house and decorate it. Who burn incense on altars of brick. That is, they're burning them to Baal and Ishtar, the sun god and goddess. Who sit among the graves. What's wrong with that? That's unclean. 
spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh. Can you believe it? He says they eat pigs. And the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. That's other unclean things. But who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. Talking about the way they talk to the Gentiles. We're perfect. We're holy. You're dirty. Stay away from us. God says, you're the pot calling the kettle black. Says these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. While we're here in Isaiah, Daniel mentioned Isaiah chapter 66, verse 17 a few minutes ago. And I referred to verse 14, so let's just read Isaiah 66, 14 to 17. Because <clears throat> it's talking about a day that has not yet come, but is very soon to come. And if you think the day of the Lord isn't coming soon, you're not watching what's going on in the world. Verse 14, when you see this, when you see God defend Israel during the tribulation period, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord, that's his protection, shall be known to his servants, not to his converts, right? To his servants, those who obey the master. And his indignation, that's the wrath of God being poured out on whom? To his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire, fire's judgment. With his chariots like a whirlwind, meaning it comes quickly and you cannot stop it. To render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. That phrase, his anger with fury, it's a beautiful picture in Hebrew. Picture the unbroken stallion in the field that you're trying to break and his nostrils are flaring and you can see in his eyes he's about to stomp you into the dirt. That's the picture. That's the picture. For by fire and by his sword, fire's judgment, sword is military might, the Lord will judge whom? All flesh. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. And then verse 17 explains who's going to receive that fury. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh, that's pork, and the abomination in the mouse, that's the other unclean foods, shall be consumed together, says the Lord. If I didn't know anything else in Scripture... That would tell me I don't want to eat any of those unclean things. But you know what? The gospel message is supposed to provoke the Jewish people to come to Messiah. The gospel message is supposed to provoke the, Gentile, the Jewish people to come to Messiah. Eating swine's flesh, the unclean thing. That, that's like a tenet of the gospel message now. Eating swine's flesh and the unclean thing, don't do that. That's part of the gospel message. It's a tenet of it. None. It does not. It's offensive. It's very yep. So let us go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. We couldn't hear what Daniel said. Would you mind repeating it? <laughs> I know. Essentially, what he said to break it down is what we just read in Isaiah 66. 
is part of the gospel message that is supposed to be preached out to the world. And by the gospel, we're supposed to be drawing the Jewish people to the Lord. And when we teach that pigs are now clean, everything's okay, there's nothing unclean anymore, that doesn't do anything to draw people to Messiah. Where in, for instance, Acts chapter 15, do we find not eating pigs and shrimp and lobsters? Let's turn to Acts chapter 15 and let's see it. Acts chapter 15. People don't understand Acts chapter 15. So many people teach Acts chapter 15 to say that once you get saved, you don't have to follow God's commandments. They're irrelevant to you. That's not at all what he says. It's just the opposite. Verse 20. We'll start in 19 for context. Never start in the middle of a sentence. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Not who have turned, but are turning, are in the process. They're trying to learn how to serve God. But that we write them to abstain from things polluted by idols. That's anything polluted by idols. That's food sacrificed to idols. That's gold or silver that's part of an idol. That's the pictures we hang on the wall that we're not supposed to put up there. From sexual immorality, that's all of Leviticus chapter 18. That's homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, fornication, incest, all those things. From things strangled from blood are for animals that have not been killed in a kosher manner. Unclean animals are not killed in a kosher manner. They can't be made pure. They cannot be made clean. What's that in Job 14, verse 4? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? No one. The next word is for. What does for mean? Because Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being (coughs) being read in the synagogues every Sabbath, meaning that if you'll avoid those things in verse 20, things associated with idolatry, sexual immorality, and unclean foods, then you can come into the synagogue where they read the commandments of God every week. And you can learn. Where does Paul say, don't eat the unclean things? That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't even touch them. Yeah, and you can't eat them without touching them. Not possible. Ask your wife, she's a doctor, she knows. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I want people to come here often because you hear so often in the world that the New Testament never says not to do this. Yeah, it does. You know, the implication is like when it says touch, that means hold on to it. I'm not letting it go. Yeah. You know, and that's how people are. Like, I'm not letting go of my bacon. I'm not letting go of this. Yeah. It says don't do that. Yeah. When we get to that word, we will reiterate what he just said. 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. What is a temple? That's where God dwells. How does God dwell in your body? The Holy Spirit dwells inside. So you must treat your body like you would treat the temple of God on earth. As God has said, I will dwell in them. 
and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Those words are written to Israel. Paul quotes them to the Gentile believers to say what? What are Gentile believers? They are grafted in. So this applies to you as well as to me, wherever you come from. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Because this is true. Because you are the temple of the living God. Because God dwells in you. Come out from among them. That is the unclean, the idolaters, the sinfully immorals. And be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. But the word is not touch. It's cling to. Do not cling to. And as Daniel was making a point, when you start talking about these things to most people, they start saying, you're not taking my bacon. You're not taking my ham. They want to cling to them with both hands. It says, do not cling to what is unclean, and I will receive you. God does not promise that if you continue to participate in this uncleanness, I'll receive you, does he? He says, don't do it, and I'll receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. See that word, holiness? First Peter quotes, be ye holy, for I am holy. And he quotes that from Leviticus 11, which is a chapter that says, don't eat pigs, don't eat shrimp, don't eat lobsters. So what Paul is saying here is, put aside all filthiness, whether it's idolatry, whether it's sexual immorality, whether it's eating of unclean food, set that all aside if you want to be my children. So Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves from all of that and perfect holiness in the fear of God. And of course, Daniel's about to tell me, the scripture says, without holiness, no one will see God. Okay, I guessed wrong. Okay. When he says, don't cling to what is unclean, that goes back to Mark 7. That goes back to Mark 7, to what Messiah said. He said, uncleanness starts here in the heart. It's not what goes in the body. It's the rebellion in the heart that says, I don't care what God said. I'm going to do what I want. Yeah. So that's what uncleanness is. It's that rebellion which God said, don't do. The uncleanness is the rebellion where God said, don't do. So if God said, don't eat the pig in your life, well, I want to eat it anyway. So God said, don't eat the pig, and you say, I want to eat it anyway. Then that's, what makes it that's what makes you unclean, the rebellion against God. Yeah. I'll tell you a true story. My own mother, she told me not too long before she died, she said, I have searched the Bible from Genesis to Revelation to show you you're wrong, and I can't. But I've eaten pork all my life, and you're not taking it away from me now. God will have to accept like I am. Back to Deuteronomy. That is what man has been trying to do from the Garden of Eden. Is God can't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want, but darn it, God better bless me anyway. Doesn't work that way, does it? Yeah. 
that's the nature of people. Now he says, and that's the nature of people. They try and find loopholes. When God says don't do it, don't try and find a loophole. Just do, it and be blessed. Just do it. Let me give you an example from the Jewish nation. Scripture says you can't carry a burden out of your house, right? Right. So historically on Shabbat, they would put a string around the city of Jerusalem and say, for today, that's all considered your house. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me? Do we think for a moment that God is fooled? No. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. You cannot fool God. Changing definitions of words has been with us a long time. Changing definition of words has been with us a long time. I have a question for you. You have a question for me. Yeah, with regards to everything we've just been talking about. With regards to everything we've just been talking about. If this is the, this is the temple. This is the temple. Your body's the and, temple. And there's specific things that we are not allowed. And there's specific things that we're not allowed. God said, don't do. But what about, I'm going to say the softer things of, well, we know that's really not healthy for us. What about the softer us? things that we know it's really not healthy with us? How, God how said, do not add to or take away from the commandments. So the question is, did God forbid it or not? If you think something's not good for you and God didn't tell you you have to do it, then don't do it. That's not adding to God's commandments. It's no, when you tell somebody else that they can't away. do it. I'm saying that the individual choices that people make. The individual that choices God that people make. Allow them, but then they suffer the consequences of those not. I'm going to say healthy choices of how you know what we put in our mouth. And, you know, we see the results of that. Yeah, we eat things that God didn't forbid, but are not good for us. Is that wrong? No. Is that healthy? Well, no. Do we suffer the consequences? Well, yeah. But it's not sin, and therefore it doesn't affect our eternal destination. We may get there sooner. Okay. <laughs> I just wonder what yeah. Scripture says is, you know, yeah. what, how God looks at it. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing in Scripture that says, don't do something that will shorten your life. Don't commit suicide. Now, that's for, the, for sure. But... Suppose I choose not to run three miles a day. Well, maybe if I ran three miles a day, I'd be healthier. So I'll suffer the consequence. My knee, well, it's not like I want my knees. But, okay. Yeah, back to scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Individual conscience. Yeah. Yeah. There are people who don't eat meat. Does God say we have to eat meat? No. So if you don't want to eat meat, don't eat meat. Now don't tell me I can't eat meat. That's different. That's what Paul in Romans 14 calls a doubtful thing. So it's like, it's not a commandment, but it's just something that's an individual conscience. Yeah, if it's not a commandment of God, if it's just something of individual conscience, let me do what I think I should do, and you do what you think you should do. Let's just not break God's commandments. And don't condemn somebody because they don't make the same choice as I do. Yeah. Yeah. Back to Deuteronomy 32. 
We're up to verse 22. To a topic I wish I didn't have to cover, but it's here. Verse 22. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. What is hell? Holding place. You said it's what? Holding place. Holding place. You said it's the grave. Sheol. What's that? Eternal punishment? The answer to that is no. These guys are right. We've been taught so much of our lives that hell, as it's used here, is talking to about, about the lake of fire, and it's not. Sheol, which is what the Hebrew word is here, is... Let me put it a different way. No, I'm about to explain it. Because I just realized that you're not following Suppose I die right now, fall over dead, boom. Where does the body go? Body goes in the grave, it goes in the ground. But where does the soul go? It goes to Sheol. That's the waiting place for the resurrection. If you remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man, they both died. Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom being comforted. That's not heaven. That's the site of Sheol for the righteous dead that are waiting for the coming of Messiah. The rich man is in torment. It's hot. It's miserable. That's not the lake of fire. Lake of fire is far worse. So when Messiah died, his body went in the tomb, right? Where did his soul go? It went down to Sheol. Not to hell, as you think of the lake of fire. No, but to the Abraham's bosom side, and when it says he led captivity captive, that's when he took the souls that were in the Abraham's bosom side up to heaven to wait under the throne of God for the resurrection of their bodies. Those that were in the torment side where the rich man was, they're still waiting for their resurrection that comes at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now let's take a look at some verses to show you that I'm not making this stuff up. Abraham's bosom doesn't exist anymore. Abraham's bosom exists, but it's empty. Oh, it's empty. Okay. What did Paul say? Now that Messiah has been resurrected, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Those that died from Adam forward, that were looking forward to Messiah's coming, could they go straight to heaven when they died? No. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So they were waiting for Messiah to come. When he was crucified, body put in the grave, his soul went down to present himself and say, I'm the one you've been waiting for. Come with me. Okay. Let's go to Luke chapter 16. Sheol in the Old Testament is Hades in the New Testament. Luke chapter... Sheol in the Old Testament, that's the Hebrew word. The equivalent for that in the Greek in the New Testament is Hades. H-A-D-E-S. Let's go to Luke chapter 16. Aren't we glad that they wrote the Septuagint, which translated the Hebrew into the Greek, so we know what the Greek equivalent is to a Hebrew word? Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. 
This is the story I was just talking about. Let's read it together. There was, starting in verse 19. Let me make sure everybody gets there. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. What's it mean, fared sumptuously? He ate lots of good stuff. Remember the scripture says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to make it into the kingdom of God. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. If the rich man had had the spirit of God would he have shared with Lazarus? But instead, no. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The rich man would not give him even the crumbs that fell from the table. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. People say, hey, they took him straight to heaven. No, no, no. This is before Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection. This is to Sheol. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, that's the equivalent in Greek to Sheol in the Hebrew. That's the waiting place of the souls of those that have died. There are two sides. One's Abraham's bosom, the other's called torments. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Had Abraham been taken up to heaven at this point? No, Abraham's been waiting in Sheol until Messiah comes. And at this point, Messiah had not yet come. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham... In Hebrew, that's Avraham Avinu. Have mercy on me. Who prays to Abraham? Abraham's dead. And send Lazarus that he may dip in the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. How many of those in torment, do you think, would like to cross over to the other side? 100%. But it's not possible. What does the scripture say in Hebrews? It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. You can't change which side is shield. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So that's saying the law and the prophets. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. Of course, Messiah is talking about the fact that he was going to be crucified, buried, and resurrected. And was that going to cause the wicked to repent? Not if they didn't want to. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. Which tells us specifically that Sheol... Or Hades. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. Neither is the lake of fire. 
Revelation chapter 20. We'll start in verse 11, which is the great white throne judgment of all those who have died unsaved. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, that's Messiah Yeshua. What does John tell us? That all judgments given to the Son. From his face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. Notice they're not judged by their words but by their works. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So if Hades is cast into the lake of fire, then Hades is not the lake of fire, right? Yeah, it means everyone who is in it. So they don't like go and Hades stays. The whole thing somehow gets thrown into the lake. Whole thing is thrown into there because there will be no more death. If there's no more death, there's no more <laughs> waiting place for the souls of the dead. And then what happens to the bosom of Abraham? Does that not exist anymore? Either? That won't exist anymore any, anyway. If there's no more death, there's no more waiting place for the dead, waiting judgment. How do we know there's no more death? Hey, this is a crazy question, but where, where are these places? Are they in the center of the earth? Where are these places? The scripture does not say exactly, but it gives us the idea that they're in the center of the That's earth. Yeah. yeah. And you, you're a scientist. What happens is you go deep into the center of the earth. Does it get colder and colder? It gets hotter and hotter. In fact, it gets to be molten, right? A lake of fire. Molten. Mm. Let's just not go there. Let's go to Psalm 68. People throw around terms like hell without actually thinking about what are we talking about. Psalm 68, verse 18. This is a song of David, which means it's a prophetic psalm, as all the psalms are. We know specifically that David not only was a psalmist, but a prophet. And in verse 18 it says, You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. Did you think that was just in the New Testament? This is the prophecy that Messiah at his resurrection would take the souls of those in Abraham's bosom up to the throne of God to await the resurrection of their bodies. It says, You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Let us go next to... Ephesians chapter 4. I like Ephesians more these days than I used to. 
It's got some really good stuff in there. You know Ephesians 4 most because of verse 17, because I take us there so often. It says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Does this mean that once you get saved, you should continue your life just as it was before? Quite the opposite. But we're here for verses 8 and 9. Therefore he says, he being God, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? So that's talking about when he went down to Sheol. So that is why I answer your question, I think they're under the earth. Led captivity captive, that's when he took the souls of those who were waiting for him to heaven with him. So he didn't actually go to the place of torment and preach there, which some people say. No, because those that are in the torment side, can they change their minds? Can they go over to the other side? They cannot. They've made their decision. But for those who've been waiting for Messiah to come so that they could ascend up to heaven with their spirits, he says, hey, let's go. Grab your bags. It's time. <clears throat> but they must wait for the resurrection of their bodies. Right now, they're under the, sp the throne of God. Why do I say that? Go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6 refers to those who got saved during the tribulation and died as martyrs. Do their souls go down to Sheol? No. Romans chap uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. What does that mean? That's like Revelation 14, 12. Kept the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Same for the word of God, that's the commandments. And for the testimony, that's their faith. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood and those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them. It was said to them they should rest a little while longer. And so both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So their souls didn't go down to Sheol. They ascend up and they're under the altar in heaven, but they have to wait for the resurrection of their bodies until Revelation chapter 20. Okay. They were not what, sick. what was that one? Did that you was Revelation Wait, chapter read. 6, verses 9 to 11. Yes, Bill. Uh, so, where when Messiah was resurrected in many graves about Jerusalem, also gave up those in, in first fruits, you know, and they ascended with him. So that would not include those on the comforting side of Sheol? Not all of them. Nope, just some. Okay. A representative number that could go into Jerusalem and testify and be seen and ascend with Messiah to be the first fruits of the resurrection, that was not by any means all of them. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. So, let me ask, so if, if 
those that resurrected when Yeshua did, what about those that have died since then? Are they are they in the bosom of that have believed? Are they in the bosom of Abraham? No, they're under the altar of God. That's why Paul says, for a believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Because after Messiah's resurrection, you no longer have to go to Sheol and wait for his crucifixion. It's already happened. So like these that died in the tribulation period, they're under the altar in heaven waiting for the resurrection of their bodies. It says they were given a white robe. It says they were given a white robe. Yeah, it's symbolic. The white robe is the righteousness of the saints. So what form are they in then? They're a disembodied spirit. Waiting for the bodies. I thought that only martyrs went under the altar. The ones who had the heads chopped off. They're the ones in Revelation 6. But that's after the rapture and resurrection of the rest of the righteous dead. Where are the people who died yesterday in the Lord? Those who died yesterday in the Lord are under the altar waiting for the resurrection of their bodies. But by Revelation 6, they have their resurrected bodies. They got theirs in Revelation 4. Two different groups. Yeah, two different groups. Yes, ma'am. Can I repeat the answer to Pat's question? Yes. The Apostle Paul says that for believers after the resurrection of Messiah, to be absent from the body, meaning the soul comes out of the body when it dies, is to be present with the Lord. And where is the Lord? The Lord is in heaven. So for a believer, if you die today, you're in a car accident on the way home, your spirit does not go down to Sheol to wait for Messiah's resurrection has already come. You will go up to heaven under the altar of God waiting for the resurrection of your body. Which I tell you what, being in the presence of God is going to be a joyous thing, even if you've got to wait a little while for your body. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. So, all right. What's that address on the absent from the body present of the Lord, please? I just want to note it down. I don't necessarily want to do that. <laughs> you don't necessarily want to use it. Well, okay. I mean, to sidetrack from one way. I can look it up in the Blue Bible. This book would be fine. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Thank you. You're welcome. Are we ready to go back to Deuteronomy 32? Oh, we're almost out of time, but we got just a couple more minutes. Verses 23 to 27 are a group. I will heap disasters upon them. I'll spend my arrows on them. Talks about the persecution of the children of Israel in the diaspora, in their captivity in the nations. They have been mistreated poorly for the last 2,000 years. The purpose of which is to bring them to repentance. It says they shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction, I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poisonous serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within for the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men had I not feared the wrath of the enemy. 
lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say our hand is high and is not the Lord who has done all this. Let me start with a word that's wrong in the translation here, and that's verse 27. The word wrath is not correct. The word in the Hebrew is agur. A-G-U-R, agur. It's the word from which we get ger, which is the word for a stranger or sojourner. And what they're saying is, God is saying, yes, I've been persecuting them and judging them, trying to get them to repent and turn back. Because remember Hosea 5, they're not going to turn back until the wrath of God has been poured out on them. But he says, I can't make a complete end of them. I wouldn't do that. God always has a remnant. Because if he did, the enemies would say, we did that. We beat the people of God. God couldn't defend his people. God couldn't support them. He couldn't keep them alive. And the Lord says, that's not the lesson that I want the nations to learn. He wants the nations to learn that disobedience to God brings God's judgment. What's that? Uh, he's at what does a gur mean? A gur is the word that means sojourn or to be a stranger. Sojourn, not wrath. Yeah, it, no, it's the same word, verb, from which we get the noun ger, which is a stranger, a sojourner. Somebody who's not native. So why they translated here as wrath, I'm really not sure. But what it's trying to get us to understand is God wants the nations to learn that obedience to God brings blessing and disobedience brings judgment. And if he just destroys the children of Israel, not only does he break his word that he never would, that would make him a liar and that's not going to happen, but it would cause the nations not to learn the lesson. <clears throat> and since we've been talking in the Song of Moses about things that take place in the tribulation period, remember what we read in Ezekiel chapter 39 about the nations understanding when God intervenes and many of those Gentile nations are going to come to faith in God. So he wants them to learn that he is the source of blessing. And he's also the source of judgment. And Deuteronomy 30 stands. I've said before you today, life and good, death and evil, choose. But he wants us to choose life. And with that, we've run out of time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 28.